The Self-Aware Leader, Chapter 2, Seeing Yourself Humans are incredibly gifted at sorting. We distinguish between colors, sounds, speeds, and styles. Often, this is wonderful, delightful, and life-saving. At times, it is devastating. Recently, some friends described something I had done as special and helpful to them. I was grateful to have helped them in that way, but I look at the others they work with and think, why am I being mentioned? I'm not as self-sacrificing as those people. In fact, as far as I know, I'm not even as helpful as the friends who were thanking me. You see how destructive this thinking is? I mean, a group of people I love describe me as helpful, and I react with, thank you, but I'm not that good, which is actually saying, thank you, but you lack discernment. And I can spend so much energy on the process of being humble that I don't go ahead and do the work I'm called to do. I'm pretty sure that I'm not alone. I talk to many people about life, and our conversations often take us to the spiritual components of life. I find people constantly comparing themselves to others, saying, that person is really spiritual. I could never be that way. My friend, John Swanson, has been looking at Bible carers used as bad examples. We are told that we should not be as blank as these people. For example, even people who don't know much about church stuff have heard about Doubting Thomas. Martha always gets identified as the unspiritual of two sisters, the one who is too busy to spend time listening to Jesus. What John has been realizing is that those people are normal people like us. Jesus didn't ignore them or write them off. He worked in their lives. And each of these people had opportunities to shine. In fact, the famous people may have spent some time saying, I wish I could be as courageous as Thomas, after he suggested the disciples follow Jesus toward Jerusalem, even though it could cost their lives. Or saying, I wish I could be as faithful and hospitable as Martha, when she told Jesus she believed he was Messiah and later hosted a meal in honor of Lazarus and Jesus. We need God to use us and not settle for comparisons for our direction and our fulfillment. And the first step is to see ourselves clearly. Becoming Bob Laurent The college I attended held an annual conference for high school students. One year, our conference speaker was Bob Laurent, and he took the stage for the Friday Chapel. I marveled at Bob's charisma, dynamic warmth, and palpable enthusiasm for his message. I hadn't watched any speaker display the kind of love for Christ and the gospel that Bob did. He was energetic, joyful, and clearly cared about his listeners. It didn't take long before that 19-year-old me decided he wanted to speak like Bob. I bought an audio recording of his talk and played it repeatedly until I had memorized it. I learned each of Bob's stories and expressions. I even worked on saying his funny lines with the unusual voice he used for Herbie, the boy, in his story. The ironic part lost on me at the time was the main point of his talk, a challenge for us to be real. I clearly missed the point. A year later, I was a guest speaker at an area high school event, and I gave that well-rehearsed talk. I tried Bob's jokes, told the humorous stories, used his funny voices, and waited. Crickets. The audience just sat there. The students barely laughed, and when they did chuckle, it looked like they were looking to each other to check if it really was funny or not. It evidently wasn't. I couldn't understand it. I was doing everything exactly the way Bob did, but it wasn't working, and I began to panic. 
Not knowing how to fix it, I kept speaking while that little voice in my head started to condemn not only the talk, but my potential effectiveness in ministry. The event seemed like a flop. I drove home that night feeling like a failure, wondering if I had what it takes to be in Christian ministry or speak in front of groups. Many years later, I interviewed for a ministry position and was quite nervous about its fit for Kelly and me. Unknown to me, Bob was part of that search committee. As the interview concluded, he walked me down to the building's front door. He commented to me, I think that went really well. After some small talk, he shared some advice. Don't try to be like someone else. What we need here is you. What these college students need is you, your unique gifts, and your enthusiasm. I'll tell you, he continued, you're going to be tempted to be like the others here, but you give these students your best and don't try to be anyone else. His words caught me by surprise, and I chuckle even now as I remember them. The man I once tried to mimic was telling me to face my insecurities and resist the desire to imitate. He knew firsthand that Christian leaders regularly face fear and insecurity. He understood that the imitation shortcut seems easier, but it cuts corners that are part of God's unique intentions for our lives. Self in the Blind Spot I want to highlight some unhealthy elements of ourself that may be hidden in our blind spots. Dissatisfaction. It's easy to become dissatisfied with the gifts and skills that God has given to us. Instead of developing our own abilities, talents, and opportunities, we wish for someone else's. We look around and we wish we were more like someone else. Even at this point in my ministry life, I face that temptation. It's more common among veteran leaders than you know. One of my colleagues is easily one of the smartest people I've ever known. He dresses with style, never seems to say anything wrong, is a gifted musician, is a gracious listener, and every class he teaches seems flawless. To complete the package, whatever he writes is captivating in its depth, humor, and wisdom. Even 15 years after Bob talked to me about not comparing myself to others in my work, It's too easy to watch my colleague and feel like I'm wearing velour sweatpants to the cool kid's prom. Competing. We never escape the temptation to compete with others. It was a consistent problem for Jesus' disciples. We are tempted to establish our worth or value based on how we rank against others. Once we spot our competitive spirit and its roots in pride or insecurity, we can begin to discover why we desire to be ranked, usually only in our minds, ahead of others. That is the moment when our self-centered motivations are revealed and we need to confess them to God. Truly, we need to celebrate others' gifts and successes rather than be jealous and envious of them. Insecurity. The issue that underlies the rest may be insecurity, which is not a new problem for Christian workers. Some cover their insecurities with a variety of masks, fear, conceit, anger, and withdrawal, Others work to authenticate themselves to prove their worth and value via their accomplishments. Some use bullying to establish self-confidence or significance, excusing their behavior toward others as just their personality type. What all of these have in common is a gauge of success based on the approval or acceptance of others, the twin siblings of insecurity and the shadows of ego. Please don't succumb to the cycle of self-despising and despair. You have been created with personality, body, mind, and soul, uniquely your own, given by God. There is a dance only you can perform, one that you do not create alone, but cultivate as you follow the Holy Spirit's leading. 
Don't mar the divine artistry at work within you. Passing the smell test. Soren Kierkegaard and Thomas Merton both discussed the idea of true self, an authentic way of being who we were intended to be. Merton clearly laid out the difficulty of the process of discovering who we are in God's eyes. Real self-conquest is the conquest of ourselves, not by ourselves, but by the Holy Spirit. Self-conquest is really self-surrender. Yet before we can surrender ourselves, we must become ourselves, for no one can give up what he does not possess. At every turn, Scripture tells stories of faithful folks who wrestled with self-doubts and insecurity. Immediately after telling the widow at Zarephath not to be afraid, Elijah trembled at Queen Jezebel's threat. Jonah struggled with insecurity and discouragement. He was so overcome by his unhealthy self-interest that he wished he would die even after God's demonstration of compassion and forgiveness to Israel's enemy, the Ninevites. Moses, Gideon, and King Saul were all keenly aware of their personal and social limitations. The Bible calls Christ's likeness being conformed to the image of his son. I don't know too many people who naturally want to conform to much of anything. We don't like to change. Conforming requires a form or a mold, and that often means squeezing into something. In the process, some parts are left out. Conforming restricts us. It chisels away our excuses and requires periods of setting in the new mold. Conforming opposes our will with its wants and wishes, and yet it's in conforming that we are fashioned in Christ's likeness. If we're honest, we have to acknowledge that we're always conforming to something. Culture is like a water park's lazy river, moving us along its self-focused consumeristic current. Our family of origin instilled in us values that we either conform to or intentionally work against. We're influenced by the people we spend time with and the books we read. We're always conforming to something or to someone, even when it feels like we're sitting still or stuck. It's just that we need to reflect on the direction we're conforming to. Robert Mulholland said it better. We are being shaped into either the wholeness of the image of Christ or a horrible destructive caricature of that image. Destructive not only to ourselves but also to others, for we inflict our brokenness upon them. This wholeness or destructiveness radically conditions our relationship with God, ourselves, and others, as well as our involvement in the dehumanizing structures of the broken world around us. We become either agents of God's healing and liberating grace or carriers of the sickness of the world. Conforming to Christ is not about doing more or gaining more. We can't lift ourselves up by our bootstraps, the American default to solving most problems. And better self-esteem isn't the answer either. We are to be conformed in our hearts to Jesus, to live out Christ's transformation so that his power is evident to a world bored to tears by religiosity and sectarianism and looking for a deeper and hope-giving version of Christianity that is found in Jesus and in our enduring and abiding closeness to him. Through the eyes of Jesus, we begin to see ourselves as we truly are, beloved, deeply loved, cherished, forgiven, and gifted. The first blind spot is cleared when we draw close to Jesus, experience his loving forgiveness, and surrender to his leading. In his presence, conforming is built on trust, not obligation. The Bible describes an outcome of spending time with Jesus as an aroma. As we draw close to God in prayer, 
read his word, begin to see the world as he does, choose and talk about subjects like he did, and care for others as he did, we begin to smell like him. Before you laugh, imagine that the disciples literally would have had the aroma of the places they walked with Jesus, the fields, the vineyard, the crowds, and Paul got more specific. We are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing, Second Corinthians 2.15. We are the aroma of Christ. Our lives, how we act, and what we say are to be a fragrant testimony to the person and essential qualities of Christ and of his good news to the world. In fact, some commentators say that Christ is the Savior that is exhaling in our lives and work. This imagery places responsibility on us for integrity and charity of the deepest measure. It demands humility and an enthusiastic pledge to Christ, not just as the source of life, but as the ongoing and life-giving presence in our lives. All of the strategies, skills, and self-awareness we can learn are secondary to the fundamental source of nature in our lives, the abiding presence of Christ. Nothing is produced without the connection to the vine. No lasting fruit. Nothing. John fifteen five. We can till the soil, but the fragrance has a divine source. We've all tried to be the source too many times. We've learned to project a particular image to others. We use our personality to accomplish things, to craft and create a false yet productive self. And then we devote ourselves to sustain and defend this false self. David Benner explains, The false self is like the air we breathe, and suggests that few things are more difficult to dismantle than the illusions we've lived with for so long. He notes that most of us possess an inordinate attachment to an image of ourselves that makes us special. That external image gets things done and produces results, which is usually how we measure our ministry effectiveness. But this is very different from being so close to Jesus that our ministry is recognized by His aroma. Too often, we attend to externals such as skills, gifts, capacity, and entrepreneurial spirit, so much so that our spiritual life atrophies, inhibiting our maturation and personal development. Atrophied muscles take time, energy, and discipline to get into shape. Likewise, learning how to remain close to Jesus, be honest with ourselves and others, live in authentic community with others, and develop gracious ways in our relationships requires a high level of discipline and regular moments of fresh perspective. Our reactions are the key. As we gain experience in working with others, how do we, hopefully, become more aware of our particular gifts and motivations? How can we experience such a Christ-centered transformation that we are freed from measuring ourselves against an illusion of others' success, a wisp that dances about and can never be caught? Fortunately, there's a simple practice that I will mention throughout the entire book. It will require gut-level honesty on your part and openness to what God wants to do in your life. I want you to pay attention to how you react, including those deep-down internal reactions that no one else sees. When I coach leaders about their personal development, I tell them to take an imaginary reaction selfie whenever they react to something. Anytime we have a reaction, even those unseen by others, imagine we catch it on camera and store it for later reflection. Reactions are raw. 
They're in the moment responses that flow unfiltered from deep within our being. Sometimes the selfie reveals the raise of an eyebrow, a tightening shoulder, or scratching an ear. Sometimes it's like a leaking stream. Other times a sweet fragrance. And still others, it erupts like molten lava. If we want to listen, our reactions are telling us a story we need to hear. Self-check. When you have time for reflection, look at that reaction selfie and ask yourself these questions. Why did I react that way? What desire does that reaction reveal? What are the sources or causes for those desires? Do those reflect the desires of Christ? What does God require of me in regards to the reasons for that reaction? If you're willing to learn more, you can ask others around you what they notice about your reactions. We all watch each other, but we don't usually say anything about what we notice. If we give each other permission to share, we might learn a lot. For instance, I'm learning to be careful about my nonverbal reactions. My wife is a visual learner and can read nonverbals like a Jedi. Over the years, she has worked with me to recognize that I need to pay attention to what my expressions and posture are communicating, which may be different from what I intended. I had a friend in college tell me that I looked mad whenever my mind was elsewhere. My face let people know that I was not fully present in the moment. More on this topic later in the book. Years ago, coal miners used to take a caged canary with them deep into the mine. If the canary, with its small lungs, died, the miners knew there wasn't much oxygen left and that they should immediately get out. In the same way, our reactions might be telling how much life we have left in various areas of our lives. Reactions are telling and can reveal three elements residing deep within us. Reactions expose our insecurities. For example, Jeremy gets anxious every time his boss comes into his office and closes the door. Often, the reason is to share something confidential or to block out the noise in the hallway. But early in his career, Jeremy had a boss who walked into his office only to scold him. It's a decade later, but Jeremy is still afraid of what might happen. Reactions reveal our ego. Our reactions reveal much about our identity and desires. For example, I occasionally get an email from recent graduates who are new to their ministry setting. They vent to me about a situation they're involved in. The notes are full of raw frustration, rich with honesty. 30 minutes later, I usually get an I'm sorry email, but I don't mind. I love these rare expressions of real honesty, which are opportunities to step out from behind the self-protective masks. I try to help these leaders discover what their reactions might be telling them. Reactions affirm our hopes. If reactions come from our heart, then they show us where we have set our affections. Reactions show us when we're being blocked, like a slowed driver in front of us, what we want and where we place our trust. When we're faced with moments of suffering and our first reaction is to seek God's face, we are seeing evidence of spiritual growth. Unspoken People Problems I want to highlight some common reactions that we don't often see discussed in leadership circles, but nonetheless are notorious people problems. They may be private and no one else notices, or they may be blatantly apparent to others, but we don't notice them. It's common to see leaders with people problems, but those around them don't know how to bring up these problems. In fact, it's likely they aren't even sure we're interested in hearing about them. That's why your own interest and effort are crucial as you read this book. 
These areas require an intentional glance into our blind spot. I know some of our problems have the illusion of being non-issues, but like a riptide beneath the ocean's surface, their presence is warning us that we need to address their source before something gives way and we're pulled in too deep. I am the boss. This one is tricky because for many of us, we are the boss. We are expected to lead and make decisions. But what does being the boss mean? When we have that reaction, what's going on? Leaders are to be in charge, yet we need to avoid the practice of insulating ourselves from criticism. And this is where the reaction is serving like the canary, telling us about our insecurity, pride, or dreams. Over time, leading tempts us to spend energy protecting our leadership rather than serving the people we lead. But we don't need any more examples of what happens to leaders when they feel they're above others. I challenge you to find examples of Christian leaders who insulated themselves from others, felt they were above others, been unable to share responsibility or vulnerability with others, and ended up exemplary in substance and conduct throughout and in the end. Often, the only thing supporting those with puffed-up importance is hot air. Ironically, as I wrote this section, I had an email that prompted this very reaction in me. Someone wanted to see the components of one of my ministry areas to suggest potential changes. My initial reaction was one of, that's my area. I am in charge there. I was less concerned about a better direction and outcome for my people and program and instead was more focused on self-protection. Wow. So I took a reaction selfie. It would help me recognize the tight grip I hold on both my pride and insecurities. The I'm the boss reaction is less about the future and greater fruitfulness and more about control and protecting reputation. Scripture reminds us of the Christ-like way here. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. I'm the smartest person in the room. Leadership smarts may not equal leadership maturity, and knowing facts does not equal intelligence. There's an old adage that high IQ gets you promoted, but low emotional intelligence, or EQ, gets you fired. Long-term leadership effectiveness is less about knowledge or experience and more about the graces we share with those around us. This reaction might be a canary telling you that you've stopped growing in your leadership and are too reliant on what your abilities can accomplish. Grace is to be a characteristic of us as Christian leaders, and we should not think of ourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Romans 12.3 Self-check Take a quick checklist assessment to see if any of these are true. Do you have positive thoughts about the people you're leading? Is there growing participation from those you lead? Would you say there is a growing interest in where your group is going? Can you identify a potential replacement for your position? Are people affirming you on a regular basis? Are you affirming others on a regular basis? If you answered no to any of these, It would be worth your attention and that of your leadership team or a group of spiritually mature friends. You can't say that to me. Do you have that person around you who is always defensive? I had such a friend, and one day I watched him make presentations in three different meetings. During each of those meetings, people offered ideas that would have helped his project immensely and made it easy to implement. 
No matter, he strongly defended himself against each simply because someone was opposing him. I eventually became his supervisor and learned that if I weathered his initial response, the next day he'd warm up to my suggestion after a period of reflection. I know this reaction all too well because I'm defensive at times. I've discovered that my defensiveness is strongest when my ego and identity feel threatened or my way forward is being blocked. Most of us do this. The lesson I need to learn is that God is at work in my life and he is my defender. Something that the psalmist reminds himself of over and over. God wants me to see my whole life as his work and his to protect. The fiery Paul writes a very non-defensive prescription for life in Romans twelve fourteen to 19. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. I am better than they are. This reaction is most common when we enter a group, room, or conference and perform a quick assessment. We rank ourselves based on unsophisticated and uninformed criteria. These might include appearance, age, personality type, job titles, or reputation. It's what leadership coach and Irving Bible Church pastor David Grant calls the better than syndrome. We feel good about ourselves simply because we think we're better than those around us. National ministry leader Jason Jensen added, And our tendency to do this, in my experience, is greater in at least two situations. When the group is impressive or competitive, and when we actually feel insecure about being judged by them, especially because we actually respect them. Paul recognized this tendency too, and told the Galatians, Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you have been given, and then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. Galatians 6 verses 4 and 5 in the message. Too often I see young adults stop growing and moving forward once they determine they're better than. What if that standard is too low? What if God wants to call us to something that demands daily courage beyond what we've needed to date? Too often, a better-than syndrome causes us to settle for something less than our best. It's just that we believe we're better than others around us. I will just avoid them. Unfortunately, resentment is too common in Christian ministries and churches. We have people who aren't talking to each other and aren't interested in bridging the divide. Too many in Christian work step over the hurting along the road, hoping someone else will be the Good Samaritan. If we came to visit your group or church, Would we find more instances of people avoiding others than anyone would care to admit or know? These passive-aggressive undercurrents will be dealt with in chapter 7. But if you react by avoiding others, there is often a spirit of entitlement, competition, and pride. If we look to Jesus Christ as our model, we see a very different mission. Jesus never avoided people. In fact, he sought out people to serve and love. It's not my fault. 
We sat in a circle at a conference, a group of eight leaders of various ages from all over the country. The youngest in the group spoke first. This happens often, doesn't it? And asked two quick questions of the group, not waiting long for answers. As the rest of us were forming the answers in our minds, he blurted, I feel frustrated. I'm the hardest working staff member in the ministry, and I feel like we're stuck, and I'm not getting the support I need. The collective inhale of the group was noticeable, and there was an awkward pause. One of the older pastors in the group seized the moment and, with great wisdom and skill, shared with a young leader how his comment sounded. In our culture, it's natural to blame others for our problems. We blame parents for all sorts of things, teachers or students for what's going on with education, the government for various social conditions, business for our lack of performance, and bosses for problems at work. The blame game is one of the hardest to spot because our therapeutic culture has championed the search for external reasons for our problems. Certainly, many of us have been wounded deeply, are enduring external problems that limit us, and carry many types of scars that need healing, some from our family of origin. College students Victor and Andrew sat next to each other in a class about leadership. Victor was an all-American college athlete, participated in a comedy group at the school, and spent Sundays as a part-time youth director in a local church. Andrew was largely uninvolved at the school, yet he had difficulties turning assignments in on time or even showing up to class. While the busier Victor was meeting all of the requirements, Andrew would say to me, Sorry, I didn't get that paper in on time, but it's been a busy week. Or, I couldn't make it to class today. Yeah, uh, I wasn't feeling well. I had noticed this pattern for a while and recognized it as one I had to work on while in college, so I set up a private conversation with Andrew. His first response was, Sorry, yeah, it's been a tough year. He went on to explain about his parents' problems and his own financial burden and added, if you give me more time, I would be able to get the work done. So I did, but he didn't. Andrew couldn't hear his continuous excuses, putting the fault on someone or something else. His excuses felt very real to him, but in reality, some had common sense solutions. It took months before he was able to dig deeper with me to discover the pattern and see that there was an issue that required professional counseling. He eventually took that step and was able to make the necessary changes, though too late for some of those classes. If he would have been more honest and self-aware earlier, his trajectory might have been very different than it was. The presence of but or if in our conversations signal that we need to pay better attention. Are we excusing ourselves for things we shouldn't? Have you ever said or thought, I would give my teaching more effort if the people would just pay more attention. Or, I would pray more if it made a difference. Those are two that I've heard recently, and certainly I use some that I'm not aware of. We need to pay attention to how we think we'd be more successful if someone else would get their act together. We need to note how often we excuse a lack of effort or excellence due to busyness or personal problems. And then we can prayerfully discern the real cause behind our excuse. Self-check. When we blame, we usually aren't truthful, and instead we divert attention to other sources for our level of commitment or work. For instance, do a quick integrity inventory. Is your yes a yes? Or do you change the truth, even just a bit, to make yourself look good? Is your blame accurate? Or might God want you to take steps towards solving the situation? Does your blame regularly hide things from others? 
from family or friends. If you blame busyness, spend 10 minutes with paper and pen and make a column for anything that you have been putting off. In a second column, list other things you've accomplished while you've been procrastinating. Think about why the second column's work got done while the first column's work remained undone. If you visited a counselor and they heard your blame, would they think it came from jealousy, envy, or pride? There's no comparison. Seeing ourselves for who we are created to be means that we need to take our eyes off of others for our definition of success or failure. Paying attention to our reactions is a powerful way to clear the blind spots and honestly see ourself. In my early days of ministry, I thought I was doing well because I was inching up the leadership ladder recognized within Christian ministry circles. At the same time, the relationships with those I worked with every day were heading the other direction. The ladder I was climbing was leaning against the wrong wall. Only when that ladder was knocked out from under my feet did I become aware of the issues, comparisons, and blaming that I had unknowingly engaged in. Do you struggle with the grace-killing temptation of comparison? Do you blame others or people for situations? Don't attempt to be anything other than what God desires. Be the real you. There's no comparison. Let Bob Lorentz's words to me encourage us all. Don't try to be like someone else. What we need is you. What your people need is what God has done in you and your passion. You give your best and don't try to be anyone else. For greater awareness, number one, what makes you feel defensive? When were the last two times you felt a high level of insecurity? What events triggered those feelings? Is there a pattern to these moments? If so, what do you think it reveals about your defensiveness? Number two, who did you compete with for attention in school, work, or home? Who or what do you find yourself competing with these days? Is the answer the same? Have you ever talked with the person or people about the competition? Why or why not? Number three, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with your gifts and abilities? What qualities or abilities do you see in others that you wish you could possess? Has anyone talked to you about gifts and abilities you have that they desire? Do you respond by acknowledging the compliment or by arguing? Number four, spend a week and pay particular attention to your reactions. Imagine taking a selfie of your reactions. As you identify them, within a few hours, spend 15 minutes journaling about it. Then talk with a trusted friend within the next day about what you wrote, asking your friend to help you learn something about yourself through this example. Number five, read Matthew chapter 23. Then get a good commentary and read the section on that chapter. Note any verses that connect well to the themes of this chapter, and then write them in your own words as if you were paraphrasing the meaning so that others would understand it better. Number six, write down the names of people you admire. Next to each one, list the characteristics or attributes you find admirable. If you haven't already, consider handwriting them a note, not email or text message, of thanks for being a faithful model for you. Be sure to let them know what you admire.